Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics, this podcast from the Centre for Geopolitics in Cambridge, which looks at geopolitical issues in a historical context with Ali Ansari and me, Suzanne Rain. Today we're going to focus on crisis and we're joined by Jill Bennett. Jill was Chief Historian at the UK's Foreign and Commonwealth Office from 1995 to 2005. As a historian in Whitehall for over 30 years, she provided advice to 12 foreign secretaries under six prime ministers, from Harold Wilson to Tony Blair. Yes, and we're here to talk about we're here to talk about Jill's book, Six Moments of Crisis, which looks at particular cases of uh, policy making, decision making in terms of particular aspects of British foreign policy from the end of the Second World War to the present day. And I'm particularly interested, as a historian myself, in the way in which historians can help policymakers uh, make better decisions, but also how historians can also write better history. I suppose in terms of how we can reflect the way in which decisions are made. So, Jill, you outlined in, in the introduction, actually, I mean, quite interestingly, a couple of golden rules that you say that we should follow when we're looking at the way in which policy is discussed and made. And, and I thought maybe if you could explain those, we can then go into a little bit more detail in terms of some of the ideas that you've drawn out of the case studies that you have in the book. I wrote that book really quite a long time ago now, really as a response to feeling frustrated about the lack of understanding generally about how policy is made and specifically foreign policy. Um, people are always saying things like, oh, you know, doesn't government ever know any history? If they only knew some history, they wouldn't take such decisions. And so um, it seemed to me uh, that there are two basic rules. Now, bear in mind, I'm talking about British policy, but you can actually extrapolate this to different sorts of, of state. And the first is that policy is made by ministers in Britain. That is certainly true. It, executive decisions taken by ministers. They're not taken by officials or by intelligence agencies or by Brussels or by Washington. Or I mean, there are a range of different um, influences and inputs into policy, absolutely. But in the end, it is ministers who have to take the decision, particularly, of course, if you're talking about committing forces um, to a conflict or something like that. And the second rule, which you think, again, is absolutely obvious, but it needs saying, is that those taking the decisions are always thinking about a great many things at the same time. Now, naturally, people who study foreign policy tend to concentrate on a particular area or a particular crisis, and they don't think about. But if you look um, at in any cabinet meeting, for example, you will find that even if you're in the middle of a huge crisis and the focus is on a one very big issue, they still have to think of the impact on domestic policy. They have to think about parliament. They have to think about public opinion. They have to think about their own departmental interests. And most importantly, they have to think about the context, you know, the rest of the world, bilateral agreements, multilateral. They can't just say, well, you know, this is what we shall do um, and, and ignore everything. So there, there is always context and foreign policy decisions are always, always very complex to take no matter how straightforward the issue may seem. So really, I started from those uh, golden rules. The, the other thing that I thought was quite striking is, of course, people are also making decisions based on incomplete evidence. I mean, historians writing about it have obviously this benefit of hindsight. And I think you, you point out that out quite well, that, you know, we, we mustn't think 
you know, we must think from the basis of, you know, where they're starting from, not what the consequences of the decision were. You know, that's the thing. You have to avoid hindsight. And actually, historians always have to avoid hindsight. It's no good thinking we now know how it turned out. Well, maybe we do know how it turned out, but that's not what the decision takers knew at the time. Um, Of course, it's not always easy to know exactly how much information they were in possession of. But you do, you know, there are ways of finding out what the input was. And this, in in the context of jobs like mine, it you know, historians trying to help with policymakers. This is part of it because it's no good, for example, providing a minister with a nice long memorandum on whatever it happens to be. I mean, they don't want that. They want half a sheet of A4 by lunchtime. And you have to you have to know exactly the kind of thing that may be useful for uh, people taking decisions to know. Um, but that, you know, it, that helps you to understand how difficult it is for those people taking the decisions, um, because you know that they're always in a hurry uh, and they always have to try and take in a lot of things at the same time. One of the things, Jill, that, that I am made to think about very frequently, particularly at the moment or, or during over the last year in the run up to the war in Ukraine, which we now have, is the importance of not only understanding the enemy, so not only producing analysis on what, in this instance, on what Russia might do, on what President Putin or his military command might be thinking or intending, but also the difficulty in understanding your allies. So understanding the considerations and this actually came up through very clearly in Brendan Sims' book as well about um, the Pearl Harbor decision, understanding what might be impacting on the decisions that America might take or that other European countries might take. How does that all get brought together? Well, of course, it, it, it's enormously complex. Um, so it is difficult to bring it all together. But I think you're you're absolutely right. You always have to try and think about how something looks from another another country, another government's point of view, in order to understand exactly why they may be taking a particular decision or, or following particular policy. Now, historically, um, the British government has always been very keen to be on all fours with the American government. That doesn't mean that they have agreed with them about everything. But one of the the jobs, for example, of embassies overseas in any of these countries is they feed in that kind of information on how policy looks from there. And that's one of the great importance of diplomatic reporting, because they're the ones who can tell you how things look from there. But of course, they're telling you that in a current context. They're not, on the whole, looking at the history. So one of the jobs of the historian within government is to try and extrapolate that, because it's never the same. You can never say, that happened then, and so this will happen now. I mean, you know, I don't have to tell you that's a ridiculous idea. Things are never exactly the same. But it doesn't mean you can't learn from what happened before. Uh, It doesn't mean you can't find interesting information, but that information has to take into account thinking about how things look from other places. But obviously, you know, it's a complex job to do that. And in particular, when you've got an adversarial situation, as we have now, looking at how things look from Moscow. Now, in the heat of a war, 
that's a different ball game in some ways. But, you know, one of the things I've been involved in over the last couple of years in the context of historical revisionism, which is something that's been happening, um, particularly in a Russian narrative, but other countries too, is to actually inject a kind of, well, reality check on actually, well, actually, they have got a point about this, but this is what actually happened. And it, it, it you know, therefore, you're not kind of setting the story right, but you're indicating why certain countries might take certain views about things. It doesn't matter whether they're right or they're wrong. I mean, that's or, or they're justified. The fact is, if they think that, it's a factor that you have to take into account when you're making your own policy. I teach a course, as uh, Suzanne knows, on actually the, the, the British-Iranian relationship through history. And it, obviously, there are some wonderful encounters there. And I'm always trying to sort of explain that, you know, that the key is not to judge the decision, but to try and see how the decision was reached. And that, you know, obviously, um, sometimes the choice is not between good and bad. It's actually between, you know, bad and worse. I mean, th- th- this idea of how you of how, how yes. you reach decisions, you know, you don't always have the choices that I think historians in hindsight seem to think they have. I think in a way you wanted to not think good, bad, bad, worse, because actually on the whole, that's not helpful. Um, And I've always taken the view, um, especially when people have said, oh, you know, historians in government are sort of stooges who are just put there. It's actually, I've never regarded it as my job to defend British policy, but always to explain it. Uh, And, uh, and, you know, you can't say that all decisions work out well. Of course they don't. But there are always reasons, complex reasons for it. And so, uh, you know, when I was looking at those six particular episodes in, in the book we're talking about, they might look straightforward, but they absolutely, you know, suit anyone. And it's true today. If you look at any decision now, uh, it, it's equally complex and, and the same principles apply. Thank you for raising your six moments of crisis that are in your book, because I think we should try and give some concrete examples so that people can, a little hook for people to to hang their thoughts on in a way. Um, Would you like to introduce us to, I don't know, as many of them as you'd like? Well, I mean, the one that, um, the one that I've been thinking about really, which in a way obviously is totally different to our current situation, but there are remarkable points of similarity is actually a very old one, which was the decision in 1950 to send a British brigade to fight with the Americans um, in the Korean War. Now, obviously, it's a totally different world. It wasn't really quite a nuclear world yet, although, you know, the, uh, well, the British didn't have a bomb, the American uh, had, but that. You know, we're not really um, in a nuclear situation. And obviously, it's it's Cold War, it's communism, so it's different. But if I just point out one or two of the things that the cabinet had to take into account in, in 1950, one thing they were thinking about was the position of India, what India might think, for example. Now, India took the view that it had a lot of tension with Pakistan. It was always, you know, well, I mean there's nothing new there, uh, over Kashmir and other things, but also the difficulty of powers like India and Pakistan to decide at a time of conflict whether they're going to lean to the West or the East. Because in, in 1950, I say it at different times, but one of the things that the Indians were not wishing to support the West over the Korean War, because they thought any idea of Western interference in that hemisphere, in that side of the world, is potentially problematical. And also, 
um, at the same time as this was going on, the Americans were offering support to Formosa, now Taiwan, and assuring Taiwan that they would defend it, if necessary, from attack from China. And this worried the Indians because they thought, well, India and Pakistan said they could never support an American war against an Asian power, and they had to hedge their bets. Now, you know, I don't have to spell this out. You can see exactly how there are parallels. I mean, another more domestic parallel is that the British government in 1950. This was just the tail end of the Attlee government, really, and it was quite weak. Uh, There was a lot of economic difficulties in Britain. The Korean War indicated the need to raise defence spending in view of a perceived increased threat of global conflict. But there was a shortage of manpower. uh, And of course, there was trying to um, balance up um, the need to get more money for, for defence with the need for more money to increase, you know, living standards and, you know, things were very bad. Then there's China worrying that actually if you focus too much on one side of things, China might be doing something that you really didn't like. Now, you know, I won't go into any more. You can see how many uh, close links there are with the situation that is faced today. I'm not saying that helps you to take a decision, but it does make you understand that this complex context is always a part. And when people have been saying recently, you know, for example, how could India abstain in the vote? Well, if you read the chapter about Korea, you can see exactly how India could abstain in the vote. I hope you, you don't think that's too stretching the parallel too far. I was, I suppose, struck, I think, from that case study about how much uh, attention was paid to what India would would do or not do at that particular time. I mean, how, how influential India remained, I suppose, in, in a sort of a British analytical worldview. Well, of course, it was in the Commonwealth, a big, important, and, and trade, very important as well. And I mean, one of the um, things, of course, that's always come up, which is very much something that people are thinking about at the moment with any crisis is, you know, if another country does something really that we really don't like, I mean, this this isn't in my book, but for example, the invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968, although that was different, it was a Cold War situation and so on. Nevertheless, you're always having to put up, what about the impact on the domestic economy? What if it disrupts trade to the great detriment of the British economy? What if it affects energy supplies? This is not a new, it may be an acute situation at the moment, but it's absolutely not a new one. And I think, you know, that's again something that you you always have to take into account in showing how complex decision making can be. The introduction to your book starts with a with a brilliant sentence, which I'm just going to read because it's something that we notice all the time, where you start by saying it has become increasingly fashionable to invoke history on both sides of any argument about why the British government should or should not have taken certain foreign policy decisions. And of course, I think there's almost a risk at the moment that that history can paralyse us because there's a reason not to do everything because we're either ignoring or repeating history. But I think we've also, we've ended up with a few very oversimplified shorthands. So we talk now about Munich and about Suez. And of course, the the point of your book is to say that all of these incidents are much more complicated than that. And to give us more examples or more comparators from just the the couple that keep coming up again and again and again in in the newspapers. 
you saw it in the, for example, in the vote not to intervene in Syria on the basis that that would be doing the same thing as we did in Iraq, which had gone badly. How do you overcome this sort of paralysing effect? Well, I think there's a couple of things here. One is that, yes, analogies are slightly the bane of the official historian's life. I mean, it doesn't mean, as we've said, that references to history are not helpful, but easy analogies are, they're not only pointless, they actually can be quite damaging, I think. But the other thing is, it's very difficult for policymakers, for example, to consider taking a decision to do nothing. There is a natural feeling if a, if something terrible happens, we must do something. And there's, you know, the, there's parliamentary and there's public pressure. We must do something. I mean, you get a bit of a read across today with the demands for no-fly zone in, in Ukraine. Now, it's slightly, more, obviously, it's more complicated that. But you must do something because things seem so terrible. But sometimes an decision to do nothing is actually the best thing for all kinds of reasons. I mean, the other thing, and of course this this has a relevance to the kind of thing that you've been writing about recently, Suzanne, in terms of warning. It is very, very difficult for any government to act in advance of something happening. However well prepared and however much warning they've had. I mean, obviously, if you're looking up to, um, you know, even going back to the interwar period in the 30s, when there were a lot of warning signs and intelligence and so on. And yes, there was a lot of rearmament, but to actually do something, to take a policy decision, to commit forces or to, or to, to break off relations with a country or to do or or commit yourself to sanctions is a very difficult thing if you're not actually in the crisis. So I think it's impossible to to stop people. Obviously, as you you mentioned, Syria and so on, it's ob- impossible to stop. Well, this went really badly. We're not going to do that again. Or this actually went rather well. So we are going to do that again. I don't think you can can ever rule that one out because uh, it's a natural result. But all that you can do as a historian is to inject certain thoughts in. Of course, there are always ways of doing this. If you know, if you work in government, you don't say, well, this is what happened and this is what you do. You say, ministers might like to consider, or usually ministers might like to recollect, actually just including some pointers to things that, factors that, that were important in any particular other one of the other episodes in my book, in fact, the last chapter, is about the Falklands. Now, the Falklands is obviously is a, is a much different situation. But what I was trying to point out there was that when the decision was taken to send the task force, there was no, that wasn't a kind of right, we'll go, we're going to go and, and fight because there was by no means, in fact, we hoped not to have to fight. Obviously, if we did have to fight, we hoped to win. But nevertheless, it, it was very uncertain and you were actually hoping to avoid conflict altogether because it was assumed that actually diplomatic means uh, would be found or that there would be a way of kind of drawing back from the brink. Now, it's going back to this hindsight question. We know how it all turned out now. But at the time, it was very much a shot in the dark from the point of view of, of Mrs. Thatcher. And you think about also taking the view of the cabinet taking that decision. They knew perfectly well that this, this all really turned out badly. It would really be the end for them. And and that's a political calculation in a way, but it is all part of what ministers are thinking about when they're taking a decision. It's actually always a very courageous decision to take, to do something 
as you pointed out, in the absence of any idea of what might happen next, you can have hope but and you can have a plan, but you can't possibly know. And I think whatever one thinks about Tony Blair and the decisions that he took, I think he, he has made the case quite clearly through, actually, when you look at his Chicago speech as well, he was articulating that issue, which is if you see something that you think needs to be addressed sooner rather than later, then you have to take really complicated decisions about when to act. I'm not going to make go any further than that, make judgments or things, but but taking a decision to act before a crisis is something that I'm I'm very fascinated with because I know how hard it is to do it, to do it at all and to get it right or to be seen to have got it right. And of course the worst thing is that if you really get it right, you won't be able to prove it because the crisis doesn't happen. That's the, the terrible paradox. It's a bit like the paradox with intelligence, with intelligence agencies. You always hear, you know, intelligence failure when something terrible happens. But by the nature of things, intelligence agencies don't tell you about when they've stopped something. You don't hear about, on the whole, when an attack has been foiled or a bad person removed. or You don't hear about that. And so it's very difficult for, for them to actually in all kinds of decisions where things are sensitive and people, not just intelligence, but are sensitive and they can't talk about it, actually nothing happening is a really good outcome. But, you know, in public perception, it's not always seen that way. And it is very difficult, I agree. Another sort of complex, one of the decisions um, in my book, another one, which is the decision to throw out 105 Soviet intelligence officers from the UK in uh, September 1971, which is still the largest single expulsion ever. I mean, even the, the expulsions after Skripal were large, but they were coordinated between a number of countries. We did that all by ourselves. And what's more, amazingly, we didn't tell the Americans before we did it, which I think is is an extraordinary uh, feature of that. But the point is, it took a long time getting to the point of making that decision. And even after the decision was taken, the then Foreign Secretary, who was, who was Alec Douglas Hume, he was very, very keen to get the timing right, timing all important in that case, because we were engaged in quadripartite negotiations including the Soviet Union, over Berlin. And they were reaching a critical point. And he did not want to jeopardise reaching that agreement by blowing the whole thing up and throwing out all these um, these intelligence officers. So the agreement was signed on the 3rd of September 1971, and then the decision was taken to act. And I think, you know, if we're looking for, it's not the same thing again, but if we're looking for some points of contact, think about the reporting that's going on at the moment about the Iranian, the Iran nuclear uh, discussions, which are carrying on in their own way. I, I'm no expert on this, but while everything is going on in Ukraine, and the Russians, of course, are involved in that, that gives you another clue about how complicated all this is. Do you think things have become more difficult with, you know, the various types of media that we now have and the running commentaries? That, you know, there are so many, for want of a better word, armchair generals now, and uh, so many, you know, people making continuous commentary on decisions, which, you know, as you say, are made in, in extremely difficult circumstances of which, you know, we don't know the results. And yet this sort of running commentary in some ways begins to shape that debate. I mean, I'm, again, you know, very struck by this uh 
you know, this discussion on the no-fly zones, you know, that a couple of people were saying that popular public opinion and pressure is going to increase. But of course, it sort of increases on a on a scale and a level that perhaps 20 or 30 years ago, politicians wouldn't have had to deal with. I mean, I don't know wh- whether that's a problem or not. Well, of course, there's any amount of commentary on anything that's going, I mean, it's huge. But I mean, my own feeling is that where it really counts in 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 NATO you know ministerial meetings or in key negotiations people are pretty focused on on whatever the issue is and they're quite good at zoning out the negotiators certainly will be pretty good i think at ignoring all the you know what's going on but it is hard for politicians because of course they're facing their you know, I was I was struck by a poll that appeared the uh, the other day. I saw um, in the news about uh, an opinion poll taken in the states about people, the percentage of people who thought that U.S. troops should actually go and fight in Ukraine, which was basically zero or minus. But the the number of people who thought that you should impose a no-fly zone was kind of thirty percent or something. It was ridiculous. But now, of course, a lot of this comes from a lack of of, of real understanding and and. Fairly enough, it's complicated. But I think this brings in another area here is the importance of, of good communications, because in a globally interconnected world, which is not what we had in the uh, crises I wrote about in, in my book, it was quite different. In an interconnected world where things are bombarding the floor, it's even more important that you get your, any government gets its own narrative and its own communication with its its parliament and its, its people clear, because really it's the only way of getting people to understand and of getting people to be prepared in a sense if things go one way or the other, because if you, you've had to have been able to explain it, because in a kind of mass of possibly false information, you want to be trying to get out, you know, good information as far as you possibly can. There's a really important point there, Jill, as well, precisely about when things escalate. And in all of these examples of crises, things have escalated. And and, and the, the one we're living in now, things are escalating. And so, you know, obviously, the intention of every government is to seek to bring an end to the crisis. Sometimes that involves further escalation. So that question about how you prepare your population for the hardships that may come as a as a result of escalation which is unavoidable is a really important one i want to um a slightly different question but it's it's still related uh, about the relationship between historical narrative and national identity and obviously uh, we in the uk have been consistently accused of looking back to you know when we won the second world war and all the rest of it and, and how that frames sometimes negatively a uh, self-confidence or you know which obviously we've seen now very much in this question about ukrainian national identity that the sort of explaining of ukrainian history and why that is a separate thing from russian history and russian national identity and even the act of that having to be explained to, to us all actually made me realise how important history is to sort of purpose and, and, and collective identity. I wonder what your view was on that. Well, it is important, but it's also very complicated because, I mean, as you say, there's a lot of, uh, you know, narrative about Ukrainian identity and so on. But, the, you know, quite often it's selectively, um, <laughs> it's a bit selective about things like the position with Poland and so, you know, I mean, it, it's 
it's hard to get it right. And it's not only the British who have this kind of historical narrative that presents there. Of course, the Russians also have one, which we've been he- hearing about. But other countries do have look back at certain periods in their history where things seemed straightforward and, uh, you know, we're the goodies and, and, and we did well. It's never, of course, as we've been discussing, as simple as that. I don't think there's anything necessarily damaging about this. It's a natural thing. And I think people sometimes, perhaps I shouldn't say this as a historian, take it too seriously. (laughs) This question of, well, you know, you British always think that you're kind of, you know, more important than you are. Okay, fine, get over it. You know, I mean, because all countries think they're more important than they really are, even the United States, if I might say so. The important is to have good history available and, as you say, to communicate it as far as you can, to teach it, to teach good history, like Ali is, for example, to put out information, good information, as much as you can. It's not an easy thing to do, but I don't think we should get too hung up with this kind of, you know, um, obviously, we don't want to get obsessed with the Second World War Um It's silly. But that's the point. You treat it as silly. You don't get all upset about it, if you see what I mean. I think that actually answers the question, because I I really wanted to sort of say, you know, do you think we need more history? And I I think you've basically answered that, really, that we need to engage, you know, with those subjects in in a more serious and try and feed in historical debates just to get people to think, I think, a little bit more about the context of where they're coming from. Is a danger in in a in current tendencies to assume that you know you've got to think one kind of thing in order to be yeah, on the right absolutely. side of history. I mean, I absolutely reject that because what is the right side of history anyway? Depends on where you're sitting, and obviously it's difficult to get history right, so to speak. It's difficult to get all the facts right, and sometimes you have to change your mind. I mean, that was one of the things I wanted to do in the, in the book, really, when I called the the chapters each one is titled challenging something and I explained you know that actually some of it is when we really look at a decision from the inside out rather than what happened after you know what we now know happened you might have to change your mind about it you might be able to see if you really see how complex it was even if it didn't turn out well it might have been the only decision to take at the time So you might have to change your mind. And we always, you know, as Keynes said, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? Keynes is my hero. I have to say, uh, your book, Six Moments of a Crisis, I I don't think we have enough histories of, you know, policymaking, decision-making and and how this works in a political sense. So I'm going to encourage all our listeners to get out there and and buy Jill's book. And uh, hopefully we'll see more historians dealing with uh, with this sort of issue and, and, and writing more engaged history in that sense with, with the policy world. I don't know, Suzanne, did you have any other questions or shall we? I think we want to say thank you very much to Jill. Exactly the thing that we need to really understand better as we seek to do what we can to enable the best possible decisions to be taken to bring an end to the current crisis. So, so thank you, Jill, for bringing us some examples and giving us the benefit of your great wisdom. Thank you very much for inviting me.